Hi there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to today's episode of the Strategy in Leadership podcast. My name is Anthony Taylor. In this podcast, we interview senior leaders and thought leaders to get their best practices on leading teams, creating and executing strategy, and fostering the culture within an organization that works. My guest today is Jeff Gothelf, who is the author of Sense and Response. Jeff, how are you today? I'm great, Anthony. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It is my pleasure. I'm super excited to be able to chat with you. I know you have a different perspective, both geographic perspective and physical perspective, mental perspective uh, on things, uh, culture. So I'm excited to talk and I'm excited to listen. So maybe as a way of getting started, you can tell everybody a little bit about your background and, and how you got to where you are right now. Absolutely. I've been working professionally for just over 20 years at this point. I spent the first 10 years of my career as a software designer. I spent 10 years designing the software that millions of people used. And then about 10 years into that career, about halfway through the career, I reached a point where I wasn't sure I was going to continue doing that because the sole focus of the organizations that I was working with, my managers, my leaders, my executives, was about designing and building the software, the product, the service, and just getting it out the door. And the measure of success was exactly that. Did you get it out the door and did you ship it? And there was really no concern over, did you ship something of quality? Is anybody using it? Is it helping the business? That wasn't really ever discussed. And so from my perspective, I really needed to get a sense of whether I could continue working in that capacity or whether there was an alternative way of thinking about providing value to customers. And in doing that, I helped redefine, with the help of my team at a company called The Ladders in New York City about uh, 10, 11 years ago or so, um, I helped redefine the way that, at that point, it was just design, design integrated into the software development processes of more strategic component of that process. And in the time since then, the the scope of that conversation has really grown not only from just design to product development and now to cultural and organi- development and organizational design uh, to build the kind of cultures that help organizations deliver great products. And the core is focusing on the customer and the changes in customer behaviors and measures of success. Today, I work as an independent consultant. Uh, I, I function as a coach and as a trainer. I lead a lot of workshops. I do a lot of keynotes executive coaching with organizations, usually larger and mid-sized organizations all over the world. And I've written three books uh, over the last uh, six, seven years or so. The first book was called Lean UX. The second book was called Sense and Respond. And the third book was called Lean versus Agile versus Design Thinking, which is just meant to reconcile a lot of these new ways of working. And in the process of launching that last book, I helped co-found a business book publishing press called Sense and Respond Press, where we publish short, practical business books for busy executives. And today, I keep busy. I live in Barcelona, Spain, and I travel globally working with companies, primarily in North America and Europe and occasionally in Asia and Australia, um, helping with the challenges of agility, digital transformation, customer centricity, and so forth. It's a lot of fun. Cool. Well, that sounds a lot of fun. I know, you know, the world of, of technology is ever-changing the world of people is ever changing and the intersection of people and technology is, um, I don't know if it's new territory. I think it's ever changing such that 
as a CEO, senior leaders, you really need to understand not only how your own internal technology is uh, delivering your customer value or customer experience, but then also, you know, how does that impact your people and their ability to um, deliver value? So, I mean, maybe we can get started in terms of, you know, we look at sense and response as the book and, and the subline is how successful organizations listen to customers and create new products. But maybe you can approach that lens from how does that affect teams? If I'm a senior leader and I'm leading teams, how can I better lead my team so that they understand what my what my customer really wants and needs, which will help me hit my business goals? That's exactly why we wrote this book. It, it, it was to, to answer that question. So I'm really glad you asked it. Um, there is a, a superpower that organizations have today. And I know that sounds cliche and everybody says, oh, yeah, this is your superpower, your company's this or that. There is a superpower, and the superpower that organizations have today is technology. It's software. The way that we deliver value, the way that we scale, the way that we grow today is with technology and with software. Now, the amazing thing about that is that the fundamental nature of that technology has changed radically in the last decade and especially in the last five years. That radical change is that that software, that technology has become continuous. What that means is that we deliver value through technology continuously. Whereas when I started my career 20 years ago, working at America Online, um, we delivered it statically. We delivered CDs that we printed 15 million copies of those CDs. And then we would wait and see if people would use those and what kind of feedback we got. And then we'd update it and would take another six months. And then, you know, that, that, that feedback loop was six to 12 months each and every time. Today, you can get anything you want, any idea that you have, a change in your product and change in your service into your customer's hands as quickly as you want as an organization. And that's where the superpower comes in. Because you can get your ideas into the hands of your customers as quickly as possible, you can learn as quickly as possible whether or not you've delivered more value or not. And if you are delivering more value, fantastic. You can scale that up and you can optimize it and you can make it even better. And here's where it gets interesting. If you find out that you are not delivering value, then you have to roll it back. You have to take that out of the customer's hands, understand why it didn't work, and then try again. And this is where leadership and managers can really shine. It's by building in the ability, the safety, the psychological safety, and the incentive structure to allow teams to learn whether they are delivering value as quickly as possible. And if they're not, to allow them to create the psychological safety, the space, and the incentive to roll those ideas back, to understand why they didn't work, and then to try again. And this is where organizations really shine and, and, and succeed at scale or where organizations really get held back as they try to transform into digital businesses and increase their agility. Cool. So as a senior leader, empowering your people through safety, structure, space, and incentives, which is, well, that's the response, but it's a, a continuous loop of sensing how you're doing through metrics, qualitative or quantitative changes, and then providing the structures in place and responding, whether that's responding to a positive uh, stimulus, for lack of a better term, or a negative, and then being really aware of how to do that. So my next question is, given that there is that opportunity to do so, um, 
what practical system structures, space, and, and incentives can senior leaders put in place um, to make that happen? So maybe what are, what are three uh, like to-dos that they could take on in the next place to be more responsive and be more sensing? The first and most important thing that any leader can do is to change the way that they manage their teams. Manage them. Don't man- continue to manage them to output. Output is the stuff that we make. And it's very easy to manage the output because it's binary. You either made the thing or you did not make the thing. And that thing could be the product, the service, the app, the system, whatever, however it is that you deliver value and capture value in your organization. Instead of managing your teams to output, manage them to outcomes. Outcomes are the changes in behavior that we want to see once we put the output into the customer's hands. Here's the thing. Today, there is an infinite combination of features, value propositions, business models, delivery channels, technology that you can put together to deliver your service to your customers. How do you know which one is the best combination? The answer is that we don't know. We don't know. We're taking a guess. And so that those guesses are the outputs. And the measure of success of whether or not this is a better combination of those things is outcomes, is a change in behavior. Now, it sounds really simple. I'll, I'll give you a really good example of this, right? Really, really simple example. You take the same team, same group of folks, and you charge them with making an iPhone app. Right? You're the iPhone app team. Now, the measure of success for that team is an output. We made, we made the app. And that's binary. You did or you didn't. It's easy to measure, so it's easy to manage. If you take that same group of individuals, and instead of calling them the iPhone app team, call them the mobile commerce team. And their measure of success is to increase mobile commerce by 15%. Simply by doing that, you've created the space and the bandwidth for that team to experiment and to learn What's the best combination of ideas, features, value propositions, et cetera, to increase mobile commerce by 15%? Now, that might be an iPhone app. It might be an Android app. It might be some uh, geo-fenced SMS alerts when I walk past your store. It could, could be a million different things, but the team gets to discover that and to learn and to experiment their way forward. That's by far the most important thing and uh, the most powerful thing that you can do as an executive is to manage the outcomes, not output. The other thing that I would say is absolutely critical for organizations, for leaders to allow their teams to do is to give your teams access to your customers. It sounds basic. It sounds like we shouldn't even be talking about this in 2019. And yet here we are. I meet with team after team, week after week, where they say, we'd love to talk to our customers, but my boss won't let me or the salespeople keep me from talking to the customers. They're really worried about all of that. The most powerful thing that you can do is give your folks easy access to your customers. That's where the information is. That's where the feedback is. One of my favorite stories uh, was a, uh, a company that sadly is no longer in business. It was a company uh, in Germany that was competing against Netflix. And they had a CEO who totally got this. And he said, look, first and foremost, we have an unlimited budget for talking to customers. 
You never have to worry about it costing too much. If you need incentives, if you need to go somewhere, if you need to buy lunch for somebody, you've got that's first and foremost. Second of all, everybody sits in the call center at least once a month for at least an hour, taking calls or listening to calls. You have to understand what your customers are doing, what they're complaining about, why they're calling in. And the third thing, which I totally love, he made all of his direct reports so that the XCOM, the, the executive team, sell the service face-to-face in the Christmas markets in Germany. If you've ever been to Germany around the, the holidays, every, every town, every city has these beautiful little Christmas markets, and everybody's out at night and, and hanging around there. And he made all of his executives go face-to-face in these Christmas markets and try to sell the service to people so they would hear firsthand what the challenges and the obstacles were to selling that. And to me, that was one of the most powerful things that he could do to increase the empathy of not only his leadership, but the entire organization. All right. So one small change with, I mean, the foresight, I guess, the foresight of knowing these are the things that we can put in place, we want to put in place, but has made it a more of a customer-centric organization, or at least the, the intention Actually, that's what I would say. Out of, out of all of that, I take the intentionality of it um, so that you're actually focusing on what is that real outcome that you want. So if, if that's the kind of culture that you want to put in place, and I know you speak a lot about culture, how do you foster that? How do you get people start thinking about being dynamic, being customer focused? You know, because people say we are customer focused. It's one of their, you know, do you find that there's that, that cognitive dissonance where they say, yeah, we want to have a really special customer experience, but don't actually back it up. Yes. <laughs> stop there. Full stop. Yes. But uh, there's, there's, yes, that happens all the time because being customer centric is hard. It's difficult and it requires a change in the way that we work. It requires a change in who we hire, um, the profile, the hiring profiles that we, that we look for, and it, re- and it requires a change in incentives. How do we reward people? What do we reward them for? But the most important quality that uh, I see in organizations that get this is humility. Now, humility, in my experience, uh, it becomes uh, decreasingly uh, um, present as you go up in an organization. So the higher up in the organization you go, the less humility there seems to be. And I think a lot of people misunderstand it. They, say, they, they misunderstand humility as a lack of vision or a lack of leadership or not, not even life, but an abdication of leadership or an abdication of vision. And that's not it at all. We want leaders with strong opinions. We want experts. We want expertise put into these decisions and, and these directional decisions that the organization is making. But in the face of evidence that contradicts those strong opinions, as a leader, you should be willing to change your mind. That's it. That's humility. And that's the key to building these customer-centric, continuously learning organizations. As, as a, an old friend of mine, Janice Frazier, used to say, strong opinions loosely held. That's what humility is. And if we can model that behavior as leaders for our teams, they will see that it's safe to be wrong. It's safe to make a mistake. It's safe to learn. And they will take greater risks, which means that the innovation that we'll see from these folks will be more impactful and more meaningful to the company itself. And to to me, that core component of a a customer-centric organization is humility. Basically, you're saying, look, 
I think we should do this based on my experience and my expertise and what I know about the market and the people that we serve and how we deliver value and all of those things. But then if that strategic decision doesn't work out, you stand up in front of your people with the same level of conviction and say, look, I thought this was the right way to go. The feedback from the market has contradicted that. And so now we're going to change course based on that. And I think that that is one of the most powerful things that you can do as a leader to build this kind of customer-centric organization. Um, and I don't know if you have an answer to this next question. You know, some people, when you look at like mission and purpose, there's was like, hey, our customer is our number one customer. And then our employees are our number one customer. So if you can't have one of each, can you develop that same similar, I mean, is it even different developing that customer-focused culture versus an employee-focused culture or are they same approach as different application? Understanding the measures of success for your internal initiatives is basically the same thing as understanding the measures of success for your customer-facing initiatives. So we talked about outcomes before, outcomes being meaningful changes in customer behavior. You can use that same concept for employees as well, meaningful changes in employee behavior, right? So how do we know that a new policy or a new initiative or a new way of working is succeeding, right? What are the changes in behavior that we want to see in our people to tell us that this thing is working? One of my favorite examples of this, and, and people don't think about this at all, but um, uh, or very often, right? But think about a policy like an HR policy, like um, unlimited vacation, right? Unlimited vacation is a policy. And, and, and in this particular case, it is the quote unquote product that the HR department made in this particular case. Now they expected a certain level of outcomes, some kind of a change in behavior because of that. They hopefully were attracting uh, more talent, more interesting talent, more uh, you know, the talent that fit the profile that they were looking for. Uh, and perhaps they were increasing employee satisfaction, that they were retaining people longer. Right. But ultimately, what's interesting about unlimited vacation is that, at least in the United States, when companies implement unlimited vacation policies, people take less vacation. And when people take less vacation, they burn out sooner and they actually quit more frequently. Um, and so that's a really interesting perspective. Right. We had a, we had a strong opinion that unlimited vacation was going to be valued by our current employees, valued by prospective employees. And we would know that by seeing greater retention, uh, better hiring percentage, you know, faster time to fill open positions, that kind of thing. But the outcome that we're actually seeing is people taking less vacation, burning out quickly, and quitting, right? And so that, that becomes a really interesting way to measure whether your internal initiatives are working as well. The outcomes are, in this case, the changes in, in employee behavior, and we can adjust course based on what we're seeing there. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so this might unleash some nerd side of you, so I apologize. Um, when it comes to those type of initiatives, and of course, you know, we're a strategic planning organization, we focus on strategy. How do you develop that muscle for tracking and measuring the progress against these strategic initiatives? The most popular model for that these days is called Objectives and Key Results, or OKRs. I'm a big fan of OKRs if they're done correctly. I advise companies on how to implement OKRs all the time. And the breakdown is always in the same place. And I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record here, but okay. So if we talk about objectives and key results, right, they've been around for about 40 years. It's nothing particularly new. An objective is a qualitative goal for the team. Somewhere, some, some, we'd like to be the best, the best in, in the world at 
something, the go-to destination for travel services in Europe. We want to be the number one manufacturer of truck parts in America, something along those lines, right? That's the objective. The KR, the key results part of objectives and key results is how will we know? How do we know that we're the go-to destination for vacations in Europe or whatever it is? Um, and those key results need to be measures of customer behavior. And that's where this breaks down. So if your strategy, again, strategically, you're saying, look, we are going to expand into, uh, into Europe. And our goal is to become the number three provider of travel services in Europe. Let's just say that's what it is, right? Terrific. How do we know we're number three? Well, we've got uh, 15% of first-time travelers in, uh, to Europe are our customers. Um, we get at least 50% of, of new customer acquisition from referrals. And uh, these, tour, these tour agencies, we've got at least 10% uh, of the tour agency market in Europe starting to work with us by the end of the year. Right. All of those measures are measures of customer behavior. They're different customers behaving differently, but that's how we know that our strategy is actually getting traction. And that's the, the power of objectives and key results uh, or, or OKRs. Where organizations get it wrong, I'll be very, very clear about that, is when they make their key results an output, a thing that we make. For example, we'll know that we uh, were the number three destination, uh, travel destination in Europe when we launched the, the localized mobile application in seven languages, right? That, that's a, a thing that you made, right? Did that actually acquire you new customers? Did it help you grow your business? That's the thing that's far more important here. And so adding OKRs to your, your strategic goals allows you to define the success of those goals in terms of high-level measures of customer behavior. That makes sense. 100%. I, I would have that thing on repeat for everybody I talked to once they finished their strategic plan. And what I like about it, you know, we just went through as a team and, and looked and we said, hey, are our lang is the language we're using appropriate? And, and you, the objectives being something broad and then the actual measures of what is specific allows you to have sort of the the qualitative openness. People like to be open. They don't like, I found, they, they don't like to be as precise. So having that specificity as well as the general aspects gives you a bit of wiggle room, which speaks to your point of, you know, how do you get somebody to be on a mobile commerce team? You know, sometimes you want to know how you're actually going to measure it. Are we successful? And the other one is you want to give them enough room to play in to say, okay, well, this is our general objective, but how are we going to know if we're winning or not is by X, Y, and Z. And just sometimes we see that in gaps where people have like great ideas and then great like to do's, those objectives or not the objective, sorry, the action items that they want to take without having that bigger picture of, of why they're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And look, and this stuff is messy, right? And it's the, the reason why not everybody's doing this and not everybody's crushing this way of working is because it's messy and it's difficult. And it's difficult because it's not binary, right? And so again, I'll come back to that point is, is it's a spectrum, right? So if I, if I task a team with increasing mobile commerce by 15% and they work for six months and they increase mobile commerce by 11%, what, what do we do with that? Do we, do we fire them? <laughs> do we reward them? You know, it, it, it's just not that clear. 
And so that's why this stuff is difficult because it, it's 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 messy. But like if they hit twelve percent, is that good enough, right? And and that we have to make those decisions on on shorter time frames, right? Three months, quarterly time frames make those more. They make it easier decisions to make. Yeah, absolutely. And that's you know in that in itself is again going back to the process, creating the the strategic planning process or your agile process or whatever process you're going to put in and recognize that it's not set it and forget it like it was in the past. Because, you know, if we go circle full circle into our first, first conversation is technology doesn't change and people don't change in, in predictable cycles anymore. You know, things are instant and you can get the information back really fast. So it's about, you know, creating a repeatable process that people can rely on without changing too quickly that people get frustrated because that's another thing that I've seen, you know, in terms of change fatigue or in terms of leadership where you're trying to put everything on the table and do too much at once and then you don't do much of it well or people are just like, I have no idea what the heck's going on anymore because there's so much stuff mm. in the pipe um, that it becomes overwhelming and challenging. Absolutely. Absolutely. The pace of change today is ridiculous, right? The statistic that I've been using in, in all of my presentations and, and workshops and teachings uh, for the last, I think, five years at this point, which means that this number is actually smaller now, but the number is um, uh, Amazon. Amazon puts code into the hands of customers, into production, once every 11.6 seconds. So five times a minute, they're updating their systems. That's how, that's how much change is happening within Amazon. And that statistic is old. It's five or six years old, which means that number is probably smaller by now. They're probably doing it even more frequently. And the reason for that is because it, they, they're able to learn the faster they can get those ideas. And they have such a massive customer base. Obviously, they can see the impact of those changes very quickly. But the, the point is that the faster they can get ideas in the market, the faster they can learn if those ideas have any value. And if they don't have value, they haven't invested very much in those ideas. So it's easier to change direction or just kill those ideas outright. Oh, I love that. Well, I don't know if we're all going to get to the speed of the pace of change of Amazon, but whatever works for your organization <laughs> to do something and to continually move and adapt. And I think being willing to put yourself on the skinny branch and say, hey, I'm going to go to bat for this idea and I have my reasons for it, but then also be apt enough to to know when it didn't work. but have a system in place to say, hey, is it working? Is it not working? Did we give ourselves enough time, which will allow your team that same flexibility in, in making mistakes and trying because those great ideas and that innovation and that growth comes from those ideas and not from always sitting safe. But, you know, that's a probably we could get into a risk reward in a different podcast. Jeff, anything else that you want to share in terms of, you know, the safety structure space or incentive or anything else that you'd like to leave our, our leaders with in terms of a best practice on how to execute and move forward with this in their teams? Absolutely. Look, your teams want to work this way. I know your teams. I've been on your teams. I've managed and coached your teams. Um, they want to work this way. And I understand that this is a big change and that it's risky. My advice here is compartmentalize the risk. Take a team or two of your star players. Create a safe time box for them. Give them three months. Give them an outcome to achieve. Give them a change in customer behavior, and then let them figure it out. Let them figure out how to achieve that. Let them make mistakes. Let them learn. Let them develop the process that works within your organization. And then use those learnings 
to scale that that way of working beyond those two pilot teams. So don't change everybody overnight all at once, but really put in the time to create the experiment, the process experiment that allows these ways of working to develop and to emerge. Because the way, the way it works in your company is not going to be the same way it works in anybody else's company. And then use those learnings to scale that agility and, and that customer centricity beyond those initial pilot efforts as well. And this is, this is the kind of work I do with, with, with my clients all the time. And this is exactly how we get the ball rolling because we're not asking 3,000 or 30,000 people to change the way that they work. We're asking 15 people to change the way that they work for three months. And then we go from there. How can people get a hold of you? Um, I'm super easy to find. That's by design. I did just relaunch my personal website with all of my content and stuff on it. So it's jeffgothealth.com. That's the easiest way to find me there. Everything else, contact info, links, events, whatever, it's all there. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's been a real pleasure having you on the the podcast. And uh, yeah, thanks for sharing with our listeners today. Anthony, thanks so much for having me. This was a ton of fun. Uh, My guest today is Jeff Gotthealth. That's G O T. H-E-L-F, so we get the spelling correct, and he's the author of Sense and Respond, author and speaker. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. If uh, you liked our content today, if you'd like to share it with somebody in your network, please do. Let's make the world a better place through great leadership, learning, and insights. My name's Anthony Taylor. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, and until next time. If you're getting ready to lead the strategic planning process yourself, be sure to check out our strategic planning toolkit. It has video walkthroughs to guide you through each step in the planning process from vision to action planning. We'll also have workbooks and downloads to document your plan and best practices to help get your team bought in so the plan gets executed successfully. You can get instant access to all the tools, all the templates, and all the downloads at smestrategy.net slash course.